go back to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3 this morning. Grateful for the festive decorations we see around the auditorium. I want to thank Joy Rowan and her uh, compatriots, her helpers who uh, decorate our auditorium each year. It's helpful as we think about this season, as we uh, come together as a church family and worship. Uh, We will finish our study in the letter of Titus next week and then look at several texts about the coming of Christ at Christmas time. In January, our tradition or our custom now is to focus on a series called The Habits of Grace in the month of January. So that is where we'll be headed in the next several weeks. What is the greatest act of kindness that you have ever received in your life? Maybe there was a time where someone did something for you that was very unexpected or undeserved. How did that act motivate you to respond? Perhaps it was to a person that, that you love, a family member, and that, that drew your relationship closer to them. Detroit resident James Robertson found himself in the spotlight after people learned of his daily commute. The 56-year-old walked an unbelievable 21 miles and took two bus rides to get to his factory job earning $10.55 an hour. The seemingly incessant commute left Robertson just two hours for sleep each night. A 19-year-old college student started a crowdfunding project on GoFundMe.com to buy Robertson a car. And donors ended up giving him more than $350,000. A Ford dealership also gave him a new Taurus. How do you think that man responded to such unexpected, overwhelming generosity? Do you think he'll ever forget that incredible act of kindness? What do you think comes to his mind every time he gets into that car to make that now much shorter commute? Perhaps you have yourself been the recipient of a surprising display of kindness, though very few of us probably have a story like this. But as believers, we most certainly have. God's goodness and kindness to us in Jesus Christ should continually be the focus of our meditation and worship. And yet, isn't it true of us that we so often lose sight of the reason why we're to be putting on godly behavior? Don't we often get distracted by the busyness of life and stop focusing on just how good and gracious our God is and what that requires of us in response? So often we just hit autopilot on our Christian life and meander through our lives without considering how God's favor and mercy is to continue to change us. Paul demonstrates that believers are to rehearse and meditate on our salvation in order that we would be motivated to obey his commands. Let's see how he argues for this in Titus chapter 3. We'll begin our reading again in verse 1. This entire section is meant to go together. So let's read Titus chapter 3 verse 1. And this is God's word to us, his people 
he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is who we are as sinners. And now our text. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. It's sure. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's ask for his help as we look at this text together. Father, we come before you humbled again by the gospel, by what you accomplished through Jesus Christ in our lives. This text reminds us of the truth. We are sinners with no hope of rescue apart from the interaction, the initiation of God. So Father, as we look at this massive text describing who you are and what you have done for us, help us to even just get a glimpse of all that this means of all that this compels us to be and do. May we worship you well, because we see your greatness more clearly in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This text tells us that God's undeserved love and mercy in saving us will motivate us to excel in good works. This is continuing that theme that we've been seeing in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2, Paul is addressing how believers are to live among one another within a church community. In chapter 3, he's addressing how believers are to live among unbelievers. And both of these frames of reference or areas of life have the same theological root motivation. The issue of good works is at the forefront of Paul's teaching in this short letter. It's especially in focus here at the end of the letter. Paul is concerned that the Cretan believers demonstrate that God is able to save sinners from their sins. And that's to be demonstrated by lives transformed by the gospel. Confusion about good works in this first century context in these churches come from the surrounding pagan culture from which the Cretans were saved. 
They come from the false teaching and the hypocritical lives of those false teachers who are disturbing the faith of many. And they come from Judaism's insistence on works righteousness. Still today, we're often confused about how good works are to function in our lives. But I want you to see, even in the order in which Paul presents these truths, he's giving us clarification. It's important to understand how our sanctification is supposed to be worked out in order that we keep working, growing, changing, responding to our God. Can you see the flow, the process that he's describing? In verse 3, we recognize that we are by nature dominated by our own sinfulness. That's who we are. In verses 4 through 7, then God initiates and accomplishes our salvation. This passage declares with great boldness, salvation is of our God. Only then, after Paul has explained what God has accomplished, then in verse 8, he exhorts believers to live godly lives in response to all that God has done in changing us. We're to remind ourselves that because we are accepted by God through Christ Jesus alone, we are therefore now to live new and holy lives. Our text this morning contains just two sentences. The first sentence is rather long and complex, but there's only two. Paul will first describe the astounding work of God in salvation in verses 4 through 7. It's as if wave after wave of salvation blessing is explained in these verses. And then in verse 8, he calls us to respond by devoting ourselves to good works. So first, the astounding work of God in salvation. Now, in verses 1 through 3, Paul's emphasizing how we're to treat those who are lost in their sins outside of the family of God. We're to treat them with dignity and godliness as described in verses 1 and 2. Remembering that all men are sinners. We were just like them. We're no better than them. We're all alike in our sins. The only difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the grace of God. So Christians are to demonstrate the same kindness and love to the lost around us based on what we've received from God. That's what he's argued in verses 1 through 3. Verse 3 describes who we are by nature and by choice. So now before we enter into verse 4, let's pause in our thinking for just a moment and notice the great contrast that he's presenting between verses 3 and 4. There's this massive chasm, a canyon, a great distance between sinful man and the glorious triune God. How can that gap between verse 3 and verse 4 be bridged? How can sinful, blind, enslaved mankind be brought into a right relationship with God? Now here's why this is an important question. We touched on this last week. Unless we grow in our understanding and appreciation of God's intervention in our lives as our rescuer, we cannot truly understand his love for us. If we don't understand the depths of our sin, we only see Christ as a small savior. We didn't need much rescuing. But if we let the scriptures speak and describe us, 
we see just how marvelous, how magnificent he is, how great our need truly is. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, in order to measure the love of God, you have to first go down before you can go up. You do not start on a level plane and go up. We have to be brought up from a dungeon, from a horrible pit. And unless you know something of the measure of that depth, you will only ever be measuring half the love of God. In verse 3, Paul provides God's perspective of the depth of that pit in which our sinfulness places us. Notice carefully now who Paul says takes all of the action in the following verses. We see, first of all, the source of our salvation in verse 4. It begins, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It showed up on the scene at just the right time. In the fullness of time, God says. This is similar to what he's already said in chapter 211. Paul is again pointing at the entire work of Jesus from his entrance into this world all the way through to his ascension and seating at the Father's right hand. Jesus' entrance into world history is the clear demonstration of God's kindness and goodness. That's what Paul's saying. How do you know God is good? He sent his son. The term in verse 4 for loving kindness is where we get our English word philanthropy. It denotes God's love for mankind, his generosity. It's overwhelming. It moves him to action. His goodness and kindness highlighted here includes his generosity and favor specifically for the sinner's benefit. He came for a purpose. God is by nature good and kind to those who don't deserve it. And that is what should stagger us about the gospel. We don't deserve it. Listen to how Jesus describes the father in Luke 6.35. He commands, love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. God is kind even to sinful and ungrateful people. You see, his kindness comes without precondition. It comes without expectation. The apostle John echoes the truth in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Here's how you know what it is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the one who exhausts all the wrath of God on our sin. God did not love us because we were worth his love, but because he is love. If you mix that up, you can take praise for why he saved you. If you highlight him, his unmerited favor. You exalt our God exactly as scripture does. Verse five begins by stating the primary idea of this entire sentence. 
This is the main thing Paul wants to say. He saved us. It's an eternal fact. It's a rock solid truth on which we bank our eternal destiny. Notice who's acting in that sentence. Consider these three simple words. They're perhaps the most important words a sinner could ever hear. He saved us. Now Paul's leaving absolutely no doubt as to the basis of man's salvation. And that's encouraging and exciting and motivating, he says. John MacArthur writes of these three words, grace gives to us what we do not and cannot deserve. We do not deserve to be forgiven. We do not deserve to have our sins removed, to have Christ's own righteousness accounted to us, to be given heavenly citizenship, to be justified, sanctified, and one day glorified in the very presence of our gracious Savior and Lord. The bottom line is stated in these three words, he saved us. In verse 5, we see, secondly, the reason for our salvation. Paul writes, it's not because of works done or performed by us in righteousness. Now, just take a moment and look at that sentence carefully. Notice the grammar, the words. Notice the negative, not, at the beginning of the clause, contrasted again by the conjunction, but, there in the middle. And then look carefully at the pronouns on either side of that conjunction. The structure of the sentence reinforces the truth. Not us, but by his mercy. Paul says, as we heard read in Ephesians 2, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and therefore were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich, abundant in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You see, the law of God proves that we are sinful to the core, that we're unable to produce enough righteousness on our own to somehow outweigh our sin. The law says that's impossible. You can't think that. Salvation cannot be acquired by somehow suppressing our sinful behavior, by pushing it down. Or as many believe, by performing more righteous acts than sinful acts. Or by living a better life than others do, by comparison. Salvation can only be received by effectively and finally dealing with our sin and sin nature. It has to be done away with for good. Paul states with utmost clarity and humbling directness, people cannot save themselves. So one author concludes, in the salvation of human beings, God is holy, the subject. Men and women are holy objects. But this is meant to be a great encouragement and motivation. Look back at the text and see how the triune God is at work conspiring together from eternity past through eternity future for the salvation of sinners to the praise of his glorious grace. This passage is massive in scope. The father commences the work of salvation by sending the son to accomplish that work of redemption. 
which is then applied to mankind by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't accidentally putting all three members of the Trinity here in these verses. That's not an accident. He wants us to see God has done all of this for his glory by saving people who don't deserve it. So John Stott states, thus salvation originated in the heart of God. It's because of his kindness, his love, his mercy and grace that he intervened on our behalf. He took the initiative. He came after us and he rescued us from our hopeless condition. Paul even leaves out what's required of mankind to receive the gift in this text. He really is saying, I want you to look at God and him alone. Certainly scripture tells us that we must receive this gift by repentance and faith. But Paul even leaves that part out for now. Saying, you know how you are saved by God's work. By God's work. We know well Paul's statement of this truth in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. Spurgeon states, works of righteousness then are the fruit of salvation. And the root must come before that fruit. The Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace for no other reason. So in one moment, as we begin to look at these descriptions, it leads us to cry out in humility, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And at the same time, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to great, his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The biblical fact that people cannot earn salvation strikes at the very heart of human pride. And it denies people the opportunity to exalt self. Number three, the means of our salvation. How? What is the means by which a sinner is saved? How does this get accomplished? The saving work of Jesus is applied to the sinner by the work of the Spirit. A sinner must be radically changed, made entirely new. The Holy Spirit cleanses believers through regeneration and renewal. It forms them into a new person. Jesus said this, he told Nicodemus this in John 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, an expert in the Old Testament law, says, How can a man be born when he's old? He takes it literally. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus explains, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. The old man and his old nature has to be done away with. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Paul states that we've been born again in verse 6. It's reiterated in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. 
He's very likely thinking of Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where God promised his people that one day I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The early church father and preacher Chrysostom comments, when a house is in a ruinous state, no one simply places props under it, nor makes any addition to the old building but pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us. He's made us completely new. Think of it. God alone is able to cause us to come alive spiritually. That's what he was telling Nicodemus. Remember when Jesus brings his dear friend Lazarus back to life, Jesus alone with his word gives life. Lazarus didn't initiate that resurrection. He didn't call himself back to life. He took no action. He didn't have the power to accomplish that. Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. So Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. James echoes, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So God poured out his spirit through Jesus Christ. That verb poured out as it refers to the Holy Spirit, it reminds us of the coming of the spirit at Pentecost as Peter refers to Joel chapter two, that the spirit will be poured out on all men. So that's what happens to every believer at their moment of salvation. He's poured out on every believer richly or generously. That tells us there is no good work that we, can, we can't accomplish through God's power as we rely on that spirit that indwells us. You can live a new and holy life. We don't have an excuse to say, God hasn't given me enough power. We fail when we choose to go our own way. When we reject that power. Number four, the results of our salvation. We read again, God pours out the spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What are the results of Christ's saving work applied to our life? There are two here mentioned In verse 7, we are first justified by his grace. What does the term justified mean? Could you explain it to someone, maybe a child or a friend who says, what does this mean here in Titus 3, 7? Why is it significant for you to understand this theologically weighty term? Well, to be justified means that we are declared righteous. It's a legal term. This is about our official legal status or standing before God. Picture being in the courtroom of God. It's not about what's happened within us. That's what regeneration is. It's new life within us. This is about our legal standing. 
what God declares to be true of us by his grace. You see, God places the perfect obedience of Christ on our account. And Christ pays the penalty for our sinfulness. Our sin debt is truly and finally addressed by Christ's obedience and sacrifice. So that when God declares that we are righteous, he's not just making up something. He's not just passing over our sins or saying, I'm going to call them righteous, though they're not. Our sins and our sin nature have been fully dealt with in Christ. We've been made new. So God is right when he says they are righteous. J.I. Packer explains justification this way. Justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance of our future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. You see, justification meets our primary spiritual need in that we all stand by nature under God's judgment in his courtroom. His law condemns us. Our guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments when we think of our standing before a holy God, it makes us truly afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. We need the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else. And this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. You will only ever stand before God in this righteousness that is given to you. It's provided for you. Another theologian chimes in, justification is an act. It's not a work or a series of acts. It's not progressive. It's not something that we do. And the weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Do you see the significance of justification? This is how we stand before a holy God, clothed, credited with righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. He takes our sins. They're paid for, they're done with. We're clothed in righteousness. This great exchange transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's accomplished by that declaration that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled by Christ. The second result of Christ's work is that we're adopted into the family of God and receive the inheritance as his children. We don't deserve to be in his presence. And he goes so far as to say, you're now my child. You're my son. You get all the wealth that God can provide to you. Eternal life, fellowship with him forever. We're now heirs according to the confident expectation of eternal life. This justification that we receive through Christ guarantees that we will get eternal life. Near the end of his life, William J. visited his friend John Newton, who was then barely able to speak. And we've heard this statement many times. But at the end of his life, Newton said, I know two things. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. What response should a text like this provoke in our hearts? 
As we spend time meditating on these gospel truths that Paul is exposing to us, it should bring us to humble repentance for our lack of faithfulness to him. Look at all he's done for you. How have you been responding? How are you responding to that gift of grace? It should cause us to hate our sin even more. It should stir up within us a greater desire to love and worship and obey him. But Paul's also going to make a very specific point of application for Titus, these Cretan believers, and for us. So our second point, the grateful work of the believer for salvation. Verse 8 begins with an affirmation of these truths. The saying is trustworthy. He's pausing to emphasize the importance and significance of these gospel facts. These are verses that you could study for the rest of your life. These are truths that we will celebrate and worship the lamb around his throne forever. Rejoicing in the work that God does for unworthy sinners. So it is worth our study and meditation even beyond this hour. The saying is trustworthy. Verses four through seven may have served as a hymn or a creed for the early church. It likely did. And then he continues, and I want you to insist on these things. Titus is to teach and preach these truths with confidence, passion, and consistency. It's as if when Paul said of himself, I preach Christ and him crucified. That's of first importance. It's possible that these things here in verse 8 refers to all that he's been emphasizing beginning all the way back in chapter 2, verse 1. This is how Christians are changed by the gospel, both within the community of faith and outside of it. Paul's stating with great emphasis and passion, it's essential that believers live out the implications of their theology. We were created for good works. Commentator Andreas Kostenberger concludes a true appreciation of the gifts of God will engender willing, even eager ministry on behalf of others. The verb may be careful means to ponder or consider carefully. To devote themselves mean to be intent on, to lead out in, or to strive for good works. These things, again, repeated all that he's taught in this chapter. These things are excellent and profitable for people. They're useful and beneficial for all people. And in light of the context, they're especially necessary to be seen by non-Christians. Think if this was working itself out in our lives as it should be. What demonstration, what testimony to God's grace, even when we fail and say, I'm a sinner and I still need God's grace. What kind of a testimony would that provide to us? Believers demonstrate that God is able to save people from their sins by a gospel-transformed life. Are those around you seeing the gospel change and shape the way that you live and talk and think? Paul's saying here, because you've experienced the goodness, kindness, mercy, and grace of God, you're to show that same kind of goodness, love, mercy, and grace to others. Do you see how he's highlighting God's nature? You can see each of those attributes here in our text. And Paul is arguing that's to be worked out in your life. 
It means as you rehearse God's gospel grace to yourself, you'll be more equipped to demonstrate that same kind of grace to your spouse, to your children, to your friends, your co-workers and neighbors, even when they frustrate you, even when they sin against you. Think of how Paul and Silas's godly response leads to the salvation or gives them an opportunity to speak the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his family. Here are two men beaten and imprisoned for healing a demon-possessed slave girl. It stirs up the whole town. They get arrested and beaten. And instead of complaining and feeling sorry for themselves, they sing and praise God. And when an earthquake miraculously frees them from their imprisonment, they could have just let that jailer take his own life. They could have just stayed quiet and left the jail without intervening. God opened the jail. We're out of here. But because they knew well the mercy of God themselves, they showed the same to this lost man. And we're told there, in a very brief summary, God transformed his life and the lives of those within his household. Living and responding to others from the depths of God's grace to you is winsome and compelling. That man had to think, there is something different about these prisoners. I'm a professional jailer. I've seen a lot of prisoners. These guys aren't normal. What's different about them? As we respond, we should ask God for deeper understanding of his grace in order that we might serve him joyfully out of a heart filled with love and gratitude. Do you see what Paul is trying to convince us of? Why spend all these verses on what he's done in salvation and then one verse of application to this way? Because the gospel motivates. It's like dropping a massive engine in a car that has no engine and saying, now, now live for me. Now you can go. As in a prayer, Charles Wesley wrote in the fourth stanza of love divine, all loves excelling. Finish then thy new creation. True and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee. He's saying we're lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's what a text like this should provoke within us as his people. God, why would you be merciful to me? If a passage of scripture like this does not lead you to marvel at the matchless grace of God, if it does not lead you to humility before a God who pursues unworthy sinners, if it does not lead you to joyful worship and eager submission, then perhaps you do not know this triune God of all grace. And that offer stands before you this morning. He's done everything necessary for you to be one of his children, to have an inheritance that is eternal with him. You must turn from your own way and trust him. With this explanation of such grace, following and submitting to a God like this, it's compelling. It's compelling. This is what we're to remind ourselves of again and again. This is why Christian writers tell us, preach the gospel to yourself every day. 
When you're losing steam, you're losing motivation, remember what he's done for you and respond. Isaac Watts concludes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. May that be so in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we worship you this morning. We stand amazed in your triune presence. You're a God who conspires to rescue sinners who are unable to rescue themselves to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, we want to be led by a passage like this to boast in you. Lord, may we be changed as we see just a glimpse from your word of what you're like. You are good. You are kind. You are merciful and gracious. You've pursued us when we pursued ourselves, when we rejected you, when we went our own way, when we said no, when we were enemies. You loved us while we were still sinners. And now as we know this gospel grace, we're called to respond by living our lives in a way that would testify to your greatness. Lord, we confess we don't do that well. We're so easily beset by the sin around us, by the sin in our own heart, by distractions in this world. We tell ourselves that the things that we're doing in our week are far more important than what we've experienced in Christ. That these positional truths that we're made righteous in him have very little bearing on our daily lives. Lord, awaken our minds to the truth that we're to live out the reality of the transforming grace that you've given to us. Father, we are great sinners but we rejoice, we're humbled, we love you because you've revealed that you're a much greater savior. May that change us today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.